0: I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we
1: touch him? No, don't.
0: Help me! Help! Help!
1: Good morning. Good morning, Coach Hog Here, by golly, on a Monday morning, October 9th. A little frosty, by golly, in our neighborhood. In Coach Hog's locker room, of course, we are in the Melton Law Studio. Elder Law is the only official law firm partner of the University of Florida Fighting Gators and protected 24-7, 365, by crime prevention. And brought to you by so many of our great sponsors, on-the-spot cleaners, um, Style Cuts, where else we need to go to get our haircut, but there. And um, Ocasio Allstate Insurance, Poser, MD. Who am I leaving out? R&R Construction. Um, I'll go on and on and on, but you'll see them. Good morning, Larry Nagle, Ken Hillier. Well, it's a Monday morning, Coach Hogg's locker room, and now uh, we'll talk about what else is there to talk about. You shoot DTR, by the way. Uh, what else is there to talk about but football? I mean, it is dominating our culture. You know, there's a saying that by society's sports, you can judge a society's values. And if that's the case, we're very violent people, are we not? Um, we're going kind of performance of violence a football game is. And it's getting even better in terms of the quality of the orchestration. Uh, Finely-tuned athletes, fast wide receivers, guys running 40s and 4-2, 4'2", 3 I never heard of such. You know, it's amazing. But um, at any rate, I'm drinking a cup of coffee here. CaliberCoffeeCompany.com. If you buy from them, then, please use the code ward fifteen. For 15% off. Have you got it? Have you got it? Have you got it? Well, <clears throat> there are two or three guys that of the same decade as I am. I'm going to squeal on myself.
0: Biden, yours truly, Dick Buckets. Well, when you get to the decades we're in, all bets are off. And it's really well, you want to say
1: year to year, it can be month to month, it can be day to day, it can be minute to minute. And Dick Buckus, really, I thought I'd take a
0: little time out today and talk about Dick Buckus. Um, that character, probably I've been reading quite
1: a bit about him in prep for the show, but probably the best. Article I've read about Dick Buckus is written by Bob Green in the Wall Street Journal. And he makes a point about Dick Buckus being born in Chicago. <clears throat> he was born in Chicago. Then he went to the University of Illinois. where the only other player whose name they've retired there is Red Grange. Red Grange and Dick Buckus. Red Grange was known as a galloping ghost. He was before my time, but my mother and father used to talk about Red Grange all the time. And then came along Dick Buckus. There was another very well-known player, J.C. Caroline, who played there. But
0: Bob Green makes the point that Dick Buckus was synonymous with a Chicago that would have been a definitive
1: description of the city um, a little, maybe 20, 30 years before Buckus was born. It was a stormy, husky,
0: brawling city. Dick Buckus,
1: known as a stormy, husky, brawling guy. Fierce as a dog with a tongue
0: lapping for action. Coarse, strong, cunning. With uh, smoke and dust all over his mouth. And under his ribs, the heart of the people of Chicago. Dick the the more I thought about those words by Bob Green really became emblematic of what Chicago wanted to be seen as. It was once known as a hog butcher for the world.
1: Carl Sanders wrote a poem about it. But Butkus put on the bear uniform for the first time in 1965. And the old union stockyards
0: had been closed by then for good, for a decade. The smokestack city of Chicago began to modernize. And in a sense, Butkus modernized the heroes of the football roster. And made the linebacker, the middle linebacker, a hero in
1: the mythology of the country of football aficionados. Dick Buckus became synonymous with fierceness. Uh, Sylvester Stallone wrote Rocky with a lot of Dick Buckus in mind. Um. He was a throwback, Bob Green Rice, to when the town first gained a reputation for take-no-prisoners' toughness. Al Capone was already dead, though. By the time, Buckus out of Chicago, vocational high school. Now, from vocational high school,
0: he went to the University of Illinois. And then he became a member of the Bears. Number 51,
1: off the football field, Buckus was known to be a very nice man, whimsically sardonic, self-aware, quite at peace with the idea that others looked at him and in their secret hearts saw what? If caught in a tight spot, they wish they could be. In public, he wasn't bellicose,
0: boisterous. But he was also all business on that field. And his business was being Dick Buckus. Even when he went to California and became an actor, it really became his persona.
1: Green makes the point that the city of Chicago never left Buckus. Uh, Green mentions Nelson Algren, who wrote the novel uh, uh, Walk on the
0: Wild Side and Man with a Golden Arm.
1: I knew Nelson Algren pretty well. When Nelson Algren came to the University of Florida to speak at a writer's conference, he came and stayed with me. And we sat up late
0: at night talking. About Chicago, about
1: Walk on the Wild Side, Man with the Golden Arm. Nelson Algren started out working for the Chicago Tribune. And the Chicago Tribune, he was a beat writer for the lineup.
0: He would go and cover the police report
1: for the criminal lineup. And he got to know the people in the lineup, because they were the same people. They kept coming back. You know, you'd see one in the mugshot thing. Next thing you know, sooner or later, he's back. And that's how I became interested in these people as human
0: beings. And wrote The Man with a Golden Arm. Played by Frank Sinatra.
1: Nelson Algren told me that The book was missing something when he first wrote it and then he went back and put heroin in
0: it, a man with a golden arm. And all of a sudden the book exploded. So Nelson Algren wrote about that tough part of Chicago. And
1: he wrote like loving a woman with a broken nose. You may well find lovelier lovelies, but never anyone as real as that lady, Chicago, that you really love, broken nose and all. I thought that was a pretty darn good, interesting article about Buckus. I have one more piece here about him. He was 6'3", 245. I do remember one time, that a fan, they'll want to do this
0: once in a while, ran out on the field. Buck just tackled him. And they asked him later, why did you treat the fan that way? And he said, I wanted the fan to realize that this field out here is a violent place
1: and you don't step out here unless you're ready for violence. The fan needs to realize this is not your normal
0: playground. So, nevertheless, Dick Buck has said in one
1: interview one time that when he went out on the field to warm up, he would have to manufacture things to make him mad. Now, I know another player, very good friend of mine, who was an All-American at the University of Florida, played in the pros for quite a number of years, told me the same thing. To get ready for the NFL game, he would have to think of things to make himself angry. Isn't it interesting that Buckus was seen as this ferocious guy, but privately he had to make himself be ferocious. I remember one time, Ricky Nateal was asked about whether he would like to go across the middle to catch a pass um, when our linebacker was there in the middle who had gone to Florida, whose name is in the ring. It's slipping my mind right now. Um,
0: and Ricky Nateal said, Well, Wilbur Marshall. And Ricky Nateal said, Well,
1: Fear is not a word you use in the NFL. But if somebody told me I had to run a route across the middle where Wilbur Marshall was, I would say to them, I prefer not to. And that is about as far as Rick and Yuteal would say you admit any kind of fear and trepidation in the NFL. So Buckus was a Bears middle linebacker. He um Um, changed it along with Sam Huff who um, had a glamorized piece written about him, The Violent World of Sam Huff. And um, Buckus and Sam Huff really laid the ground for the reputation of Tommy Novus came along for the Falcons as being the kind of guy that you just didn't want to go across the middle and engage. And those guys now, I don't know if we've got any big-name ones now there that ring a bell with me, but uh, we had them with the Pittsburgh Steelers, etc. So Dan Jenkins wrote about Dick Buckus. Uh, a lot of people wrote about him, and he became a uh, person who helped create the reputation of the NFL. His real name was Richard Marvin Butkus. He was Lithuanian-American family. And his father was an electrician for the Pullman Standard Railroad Car Company. He was chosen by the Bears in the first round, third overall in the 1965 NFL draft. Well, there you are. Uh, He pursued acting upon leaving football. He appeared in motion pictures, including Necessary Roughness and Any Given Sunday. And he was a character in TV shows, including My Two Dads. He, along with Jim Brown, were really the guys who made it such a monsters of the midway for him, for Buckus type reputation for the league. Wow, wow,
0: wow. Wow. Um, The other character, of course, we have to talk about, uh, Coach Hogg's locker room, is the irrepressible Deion Sanders, who won again, who won again by a field goal. And guess what? He's not happy about it. Now, you can imagine, why wouldn't he be happy? Why wouldn't he have nice things to say?
1: You know, coaches say, oh, well, I'm really proud of the way Vanderbilt played. They played well. And then they go off into a little quiet adulation for their own team. But in an interview, in Tempe, Arizona.
0: He gets angry, and he says, I apologize for my anger today, Dion said, but I don't expect mediocrity. I'm sick of it, he said. But
1: he never raised his voice, but he said he had several things to get off his chest. He was very unhappy with his win. And he was unhappy with the 27-point deficit the previous week against Southern California that his team rallied to come back to 48-41.
0: But he blamed himself for that too. He said, I've delivered every type of message you can fathom." This is not just the team, it's all of us. And he was disgusted with the penalties, the sacks. I don't know, he said, how everyone else's kickers kick the ball out of the end zone, but ours. He was disgusted with that. He was sick of
1: the consistent leaks in his coaching preparation that he thought his team displayed. So in spite of winning, he was not happy. He said that his team
0: played like hot garbage and that he's sick of it. And the press even tried
1: to help him. Oh, what about the first drive? Well, Dion. Dismissed that and said, I'm sorry with my impatience. I don't have patience for too much in life. All you have to do is ask my kids. So,
0: Dion was frustrated. He uh, nevertheless won the game. But he shocked the press by not being happy about it. And that
1: his team is not yet understood what losing means to him and should mean to them. I thought that was interesting. Um, They have won again, and they're way beyond the expectations of
0: anybody and that team this year. For example, the team went 1-11 and in 2022. Already he has surpassed that. He has become way bigger than just college football. He has become a personality icon. People study him to see
1: how far can you go with his bravado? How far can you go with his swagger? How far can you get by Tell everybody how great you are? That ain't supposed to be the way it's done, is it? So he's doing it. And he's making it a a Rocky Mountain Conference showdown when they come to Colorado State in week three and all that. You saw that. That was an incredible game. So, meanwhile, in the promotion world, the demographics of the Buffaloes, Colorado Buffaloes, they have the generated probably the most diverse group of viewers that is currently being seen in college football right now. Black viewers constitute 23% of the audience for Colorado's game against Oregon on September 23rd, which is about 7% points higher than college football games that were broadcast by ABC last season. Now, it's not just black viewers, it's white viewers, it's people who are not Colorado Buffalo fans. So he has got ratings that are incredible, and they are drawing all eyes to what he does and how he does it. Meanwhile, here,
0: Florida did it again, they won. But people still aren't satisfied with the way they won. It wasn't any deep balls. There wasn't any real
1: dominance that should be there. Um, Next week is a precarious week for Florida. They're going to play South Carolina there. They could lose that. It's a big game. Georgia looks absolutely invincible. Looks like it can't be turned around. Nobody seems to be able to handle them. Meanwhile, Alabama still is squeaking out wins uh, and making good on his promise, though, winning. In the pros, A.R. Richardson. Let's take time out and talk to him a moment about him. Injured again. I saw the play.
0: He's already had a concussion. That ain't good. Now he's running the ball and he falls on his throwing shoulder
1: and they take him out of the game. Now, supposedly the examination of him showed no real serious damage and he'll be back. We're talking about a guy
0: probably runs too much. The jury is still out on Richardson.
1: Chris Collingsworth says, the most important asset a quarterback can have is the ability to process information. The San Francisco quarterback has that ability, has the ability to process
0: information real quickly. The jury is out on whether or not Richardson does.
1: Does he have the ability or when it comes time to process information, do his instincts take over and he starts running with the ball and putting himself in jeopardy? The latter seems to be the case
0: based upon his injury record. That doesn't portend for a long
1: future in the NFL. It's uh, not the way you want to play the game.
0: In terms of volleyball, the University of Florida
1: won, but they've lost their big player. And their crowd really wasn't what it was. Had their big player been in there, I don't think. I think there would have been a much bigger crowd for the volleyball. The jury is still out on what name, image, and likeness in the collective is doing to the other sports. We know what it means to
0: football. But here's the problem, and people have brought this up. There's no Rapport
1: built between the, let's take the Florida Gators, between the Florida Gators and the fans for players like it was before
0: because we're not matriculating the players. They're not coming here as freshmen. Then graduating to sophomores. Then graduating to juniors. Those three years are important to making a familiar bond with the fans. So, if you don't have a team that's made up of names that the fans have become familiar with and have had to their house or whatever, what does that do? What does that do to? The esprit de corps of the team and the fans. Well, is it just now a business?
1: Is it just now? Even the pros have more, the argument goes, because they signed these players to long-term contracts. You know, a quarterback for the Chiefs, he becomes the Chiefs.
0: He's going to be there for a while. The quarterback in Jacksonville. Lawrence, he's going to be there for a while. So even the pros, it seems, have more
1: familiarity with the fans than do many of these colleges. And I think that accounts for one of the reasons why Deion Sanders has fit into a public relations vacuum so
0: handily. People want to identify with something in the college sports world that they can become familiar with. And if you look around, that's a little more difficult than it
1: was when we had, quote, regular college players. So I don't know how this is going to pan out, particularly in basketball and some of these other sports, how much rapport is going to be built? I don't know if anybody right now can name any players on the basketball
0: team. I can't. And I can't name many of the players on the football team. Name the quarterback now, name the running back, and the receiver. And that's it. So that's
1: one of the issues about name, image, likeness, and the collective, college football, pro football, and the other sports. It's all changed.
0: It's all different. It's all about money. It is all about money. Student hyphen athlete. I don't even hear that said that much anymore. Do you? Student hyphen athlete? Not much. I mean, I suppose the case can be made. But when you got musical chairs and guys are going to the highest bidder in college, notwithstanding, whatever academic major they have, what does that say about the college game? That question has come up and I don't have the answer. So that's coach Hogg's locker room for Monday, the passing
1: of Dick Buckus, an icon, of course, a hero, ferocious on the field, but privately admitted he had to make himself angry before he could be ferocious on the field. Be right back with Ward's weather in just a moment. on demand and in crisis as a first responder for 18 florida counties and the southeast from texas to virginia we are proud of this rare accomplishment lewis oil delivers attention all gator fans melden law is giving away a chance to experience the florida georgia game like never before tonight's day at the hill this is ward scott and i want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills the Ward Scott Files Premium Sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems Large Enough to Serve You, Small Enough to Care Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators The Ward Scott Files Gold Sponsors are Lewis Oil Company Shoot GTR On-the-Spot Dry Cleaners r Construction And Style Cuts If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.awardsgodfiles.com, and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Wardscott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us.
0: Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him.
1: Hi, boy. Can we
0: touch him? No, thanks. Help me! Help! Help! Oil, Chevron stations, fossil fuel.
1: By golly, we have got ourselves a cold snap, Uh, 50 at night. You can hear it my voice. And we got a little bit of a warm-up, not high, though, maybe um, nudging 80. So it's a beautiful fall day here in the piney woods of north-central Florida. The Gulf of Mexico is not completely done, though. It's been quiet since late August. But soon it is predicted that moisture is liable to gather in the region again. And uh, there could be more tropical systems. And that might uh, make the hurricane season still alive and well, as they say, in the Gulf of Mexico. So we'll see how that works out. Storm development in the Gulf of Mexico may, next week, according to AccuWeather, may be either tropical, subtropical, or non-tropical. And that is the mystery that we'll keep an eye on Um, and let you know. But we're not completely out of the hurricane season yet. Don't think we are. Well, well, well. I've been thinking a lot, of
0: course, as you have probably about the Middle East and you know the stories
1: if you know your Bible you know that um, that's the powder keg of the future powder keg of the past
0: um, really clashing of cultures clashing of religious systems I really have come to believe that all the world's problems, all of them fundamentally are spiritual problems. One of the things that kept white and black from
1: all the myths are, you know, that whites hated the blacks and enslaved and all that. But one of the things that kept their relationships More often than not, humane,
0: and all you got to do is read Southern literature or talk, most of them are dead now, but talk to the old people, white or black. What kept their relationships humane was a shared religious system, Christianity. If one were not Christian in the 1500s, 1600s, when we were doing our pioneering as Europeans, one was not civilized. Civilization came with Christendom. That was the cultural adage, practice, belief. Now I have come across a very interesting piece written by Scott Powell, who's written a book called Rediscovering America.
1: You know, you're as truly here as a professor, a research professor, writing professor. And I consider you to be my students in my class.
0: And so I want to share some thoughts with you about Christendom. A term you may never hear right now. What is Christendom? <clears throat> Scott Powell will teach us a lot about what Christendom is by writing about Christopher Columbus. So I'm going to go through some things about Christopher Columbus with you that perhaps you knew a little of, none of, or all of. First of all, we know he was born in Italy. He was named for Christopher Colombo. In Latin, Columbus means dove, while Christopher means Christ bearer. Christ bearer. Now, today it's fashionable to take what Powell calls cheap shots at Columbus, to tear down his statues, to really take a chapter out of Marxist. They blame Columbus for unfair treatment of indigenous people. What they don't take into consideration, writes Powell, is his Spanish Maquismo crew. His crew was made up of Spanish Maquiscos. Encountered ruthless tribes that included cannibals and brutal Aztecs. His crews could contend with that. As far as the indigenous people go, how many people who are running around belly aching about his statue know that in fact columbus never ever set foot on or even saw any territory that later became the continental united states Never. His four expeditions to the new world
1: between 1492 and 1504 were focused exclusively on Caribbean islands and territories that are now Latin America, Central America, and South America.
0: Now in discovering that part of the world,
1: he opened the door up to exploration and colonization by Europeans who followed him. That's basically what he did.
0: He was a voluminous writer, a self-made man. But most importantly, in terms of what we're looking at right now, he was an inspired Christian. And what he And this makes me think of what's going on in the Middle East right now. What motivated him was he was deeply,
1: so writes Powell, affected by the militant nature of Islam at the eastern end of the Mediterranean. They blockaded Europeans' trade routes with the Orient.
0: Columbus took it upon himself, felt it was God's conviction to find a western sea route. He learned about celestial navigation. He was confident he could sail west. By his late 30s, he was considered it was God's motivation for him to do it but then he could not find sponsorship. He only found rejection
1: and ridicule. Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand of Spain turned him down several times. But what sustained him was his Christian faith, his seafaring skills, and his conviction about finding a westward passage. And his brave willingness, Powell
0: writes, to lead an armed flotilla to rescue the church, the Christian church from Muslim, Christendom, from Muslim hands in the Eastern Mediterranean. Now, Powell writes that Christendom had suffered a loss of Constantinople to the Muslim Turks 40 years prior. So Islam needed to be driven out of Spain and Europe. Isabella and Ferdinand played a role. And finally, Columbus convinced them to Support his expedition. He was defending Christendom and all of its civilizing influences that came with the belief that the individual has choice, and that behavior is a matter of spirituality in your character. I have to compare that.
1: Don't you to things like this? I know I'm going to say her name, and you're going to go, oh, my God, Hillary
0: Clinton. Last Thursday on CNN's primetime, she accused followers of Trump to be cult members. Cult members. Now, everybody knows somebody who's a follower of Trump. I assure you. And everybody knows what kind of people they are. I'm talking about the people down the road from your house who get the mail out of the mailbox. But Clinton has gone off after the voters of. the voters of Trump, not Trump, but the voters, and call them cult members. I have to think of that in the context of those same people who follow Clinton, what they call Columbus. Aren't those same people, many who follow Clinton, if there's anybody following her, or that wing of the party, Democrat Party, aren't they advocating, taking down statues of European influence, which is all about, if you look back, Christendom. I don't get it. You know, Tim Scott from South Carolina. I was born in South Carolina. I'll guarantee you, we go back far enough, we're related. He has spoken to this point. Because what the Clintons want to do with the black people is let the state give them money, take care of them, not the family. The family is based upon spirituality. The state
1: is secular. Although all our songs and things suggest that it's not, it is the way it's been done by the
0: left. Tim Scott said, and
1: he may have said this during the presidential debate, I don't remember, but it's written about by William McGurn. Tim Scott said black families survive slavery, survive poll taxes. Survived
0: literacy t- uh, tests. We survived all that. What we haven't survived is Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. He said this. Did you know it? Where
1: in the Great Society, he says, they decided to put money in the family in place of the black father.
0: That has resulted in the black father in absent from the household. I would argue that the family is a based upon Christendom. So now we've got this mess where so many people are looking for the state for their salvation. Thomas Sowell points out that in 1960,
1: Almost 100 years after slavery, only 22% of African-American children grew up in homes with one parent. 30 years later, after the expansion of the welfare state under the Great Society, that percentage tripled.
0: So now you have 66% of African American children growing up in homes with one parent. The National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia has discovered
1: that 65% of black children lived in homes with married parents in the 1870s. By
0: 1918,
1: a half a century after the 13th Amendment abolished slavery,
0: almost 80% of black children lived in homes with married parents. So Tim Scott's main point, the great society has done irrevocable damage to the cause it was supposed to have. Does that surprise you? Does that surprise you at all? The other thing that I want to put in class today before we go away is a piece written by Christopher Rufo. that's in um, the publication by Hillsdale College, called Imprinus, about the transgender movement. The transgender empire, it's called. Inside the transgender empire. And Rufo opens his piece by saying the transgender movement is pushing its agenda everywhere. You have the activist teachers. You have activist health professionals. And you have all sorts of propaganda. So Rufo sets out to find out, how did this get started? Where did it come from? We know where the destruction of the black family came from. It came from the government. Wanting to help. Came from the great society. But where does the transgender movement come from? Rufo says it's come from academics. He says in the late 1980s, Judith Butler, Gail Rubin, Sandy Stone, and Susan Stryker established a course called Transgender Studies established a discipline known as queer theory and made the argument that academics, which up until then had been based upon gender, had been used as a social construct to oppress racial and sexual minorities. So they piggybacked the oppression of sexual minorities onto the movement of racial minorities and got ramped up under the Great Society and invented a term known as heteronormativity, heteronormativity, which places the white male
1: at the apex of the heterosexual power structure, heterosexual power
0: structure. Consequently, the best way to nullify this, you guessed it, is to promote transgenderism. And if men can become women, and women men, the Christian structure of creation would be toppled. I found that to be just fascinating. That it's been twisted around. The movement is, of course, political. Its goal is to abolish heteronormativity. I didn't even realize I was one. Heteronormativity. The great project of this movement, make no mistake about it, is to abolish the distinctions of man and woman, to transcend the limitations established by God and nature. and to transform society. And this movement began in American academia.
1: (laughs) So where now we've got such language as this, we're going to make sure that all transgender, Illinoisians are ensured their basic human rights.
0: Are going to disrupt entrenched gender norms in Western society. Entrenched gender norms. Well, Put all this together, hopefully, for you to think about. Taking you all the way back to Columbus. Muslims and Christians.
1: We've got a knock down, drag down, drag out war going on there now in the Middle East. And we've got these cultural
0: wars going on in our country. I'll let you figure out what to do about it. It's being fought. It's being fought. So the future of transgender medicine has become in flux. That's a battleground. That's a place you need to keep your eye on. Transgender medicine. I hope you got something out of
1: class today. Have a great day. Warthog Command Center out.